Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have Neil Rippingale from NR Stonecraft. Uh, Thank you for joining uh, me today. Thank you very much, Danielle. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Appreciate so it. Tell, yeah, tell me about your background. Well, I started off um, as a young, uh, a young school kid in Scotland, uh, in the southwest of Scotland. And I went to agricultural college after leaving school. And I was there for three years. So I spent uh, probably the f- first 15 years uh, of my career uh, working in agriculture. Okay. And it was during this time working in agriculture that um, I was asked to do some dry stone repairs on the farm. And uh, it's quite comical. When I did the repairs, it was probably the worst you have ever seen. <laughs> and, uh, I actually knew it was not correct, but what I was missing was some basic fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until about a few years later, when I was 21, I had the very fortunate opportunity to work with the uh, Probably one of the best in Scotland at that time was absolutely incredible. His name was Charles Jardin. And he had been a waller for 50 years and his father oh before him. Yeah. And uh, so I was taught old school and um, I was frightened to touch a stone at one point uh, working with him. But uh, he actually gave me the basics. Now, once I had the basics, it was fantastic after that. I had a sort of flair and an aptitude for it. But it was later on when I was asked to just to do small repairs on the farm. You're working with livestock. You're working with machinery, crops, etc. And then periodically, you might be working with bricks, block. You might be working with a, a stone and a repair. So it was from there that I seemed to have this flair and I was asked to do some uh, repairs on a neighbouring farm. And from there, um, someone from the Agricultural Training Board at that time asked me if I would uh, be able to do a repair. And then from there, it progressed and progressed. Then someone asked me to be an instructor with the Agricultural Training Board. And from there, I went through the certification process and I became an instructor and um, I went into a few competitions. And uh, this is a novice and I started to beat the professionals. And I thought, <laughs> wow, this is, <laughs> this is strange. I didn't expect that. So I seemed to have a flair and an aptitude for it. And um, so it started off there. Now, at this point, it's still a hobby. And this hobby took, uh, got out of control and I went self-employed. <laughs> And um, from that hobby, I um, I managed to go self-employed within a 12-mile radius uh, of my place near in Edinburgh this time. Uh, I've moved from southwest Scotland up into Edinburgh. 
From there, um, the 12 mile radius, it moved into 50 mile radius and I started to train a lot of people and um, they started to take on the work themselves. Then my <laughs> 50 mile radius and 20 mile radius went into 300 mile radius. Oh my goodness, yeah. So I started teaching on the Western Isles of Scotland and round about this time, I, I was asked to work in Nova Scotia. And this is where the international theme came in. So the international theme went from there to, I think the next place was Australia. Oh my goodness. 1999. And then I went to Switzerland. I was there for three separate occasions. And then over to Seattle. And it was during my time working in Seattle that the Drystone Conservancy asked me if I'd be interested in working on a project. And that's basically the background. Uh, so it, um, uh, for my sins, it started as a hobby. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I, I think that, that that is great. And I think most, I talked to a lot of people doing the podcast in preservation. And a lot of people didn't, this wasn't their first career that, you know, they yes. chose something yep. else and then they, they kind of found this. Yes. Um, I, and I, as you were talking, I was curious because I know there's a lot of dry stone in America, like in New England. Is it uh-huh. most, did it mostly come from like, Scotland and, and England or was it was that where it mostly came from originally? A lot of there's actually stone masonry signatures say all over the United States right and for example here in Kentucky and also in Tennessee there is a uh, trades here of the um, the Irish and the Scots settling mm-hmm. here Right. In the mid-1800s, because it reminded them of their home and the stone that they worked with back home in Ireland and Scotland. Okay. Now, certainly in the New England area, yes, um, uh, there were, at first, there were farmers who would clear the land of uh, the surplus right. stone. And uh, there is one particular place in, uh, in Connecticut that I've worked on in many, many occasions. There is five different types of walling on the one property, and it's oh only my 60 yeah. acres. So it started off as the farmers just throwing the stone to the side. Mm-hmm. If it's near an entrance, the stone becomes more formal. They've cut right. the stone and shaped it. And they, um, there's cons- consumption walls where there's just a mass of stone to clear the land. So there's a few different styles there. But yes, they came over from Great Britain and settled there, obviously, in New England. And they, um, But it's more a glacial boulder there. It's round stone. Oh, yeah. They have, they have some flat bedded stone as well, don't get me wrong. But the, this is the beautiful thing about dry stonework. There's such a variety of stonework. And I found that over the 33 countries that I've traveled to and the 43 states that I've worked in as well. Um, so it's a, And that's one of the things that attracted me to it is the variety of the stonework. It is a beautiful material to work with and they all behave differently. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that is, um, I, that, that makes sense though that you, you can use all different types of stone because the stone, the stone varies a lot. I mean, it's, it's all the same material, but it's really not because, you know, there's hard stone, there's soft stone, you know, there's- Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah very good. So what, what drew you into the dry stone masonry? Well, apart from the hobby, I, um, it was, um, I, I found it easy and uh, it was really rewarding. When I worked on agriculture to start with, if you plough a field, it's you can make a nice straight and level furrows, but it's only there momentarily and then it's into a, into a crop. It's the same with when you're cutting barley, wheat, if it's cutting grass for silage or hay, make beautiful straight lines. But once again, taking a pride in your work, it's only there momentarily. But when I started right. to do stonework, um, you can actually see the efforts uh, of your labours and uh, it's very satisfying not only to myself but when you see the client is absolutely amazed at how this puzzle comes together 
And uh, so I think there's been a little bit of a blessing there for me because um, people who have struggled and struggled for years, I found it quite easy. Uh, I don't mean to be complacent about that, but um, I did move up the certification chain up the ladder very quickly, but that was due to hard work and determination over the years. And hence, it's taken me all over the world. And uh, here I am today. But, uh, but no, I don't know if it's a calling, but it's certainly an aptitude. The best way I can explain it as well is um, uh, it, it is more of a puzzle. And, um, but, and, and this might sound silly, though, uh, when I would finish off with here on this part was um, when I look at the stone, it could be organized chaos to anybody uh, who's not trained. But it took me a few years to master it that every stone has a place. So the stone actually speaks to me. Now, I know that sounds silly, but um, but it doesn't speak to me with a voice, but with its shape, its size, yeah. its color, its patina, uh, everything there that that uh, helps me identify the stone and where it's placed in the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I've I've heard other um, people that work with with stone talk talk about that. So that that yeah yeah. So that that's very um, that's very interesting. I think that I think that having a natural uh, a natural talent towards something really helps too. And then it's, it kind of, it makes it a little bit easier. Well, I think uh, it doesn't matter what trade you're in, but if you're certainly interested, mm-hmm. um, well, I did uh, a lot of dedication in the early years. I was working on the farm from four in the morning till about eight at night. And uh, I'm still doing stonework in between times. Oh, so goodness, yeah. if you want to be lackadaisical and laid back approach, then you'll only get out of it what you put into it. Right. So I put a lot of effort into it in the early days, which is rewarding now. But um, I'm not saying it's second nature, but um, I don't know. It's just um, <laughs> there's sometimes I have to take a helicopter view of the situation and think, wow. Yes, <laughs> yes. All these, these ideas. And I have actually been uh, very fortunate to learn from trainees and mentors and other peers. And um, I learn a lot from their mistakes. I don't tell them my mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> but we all have them. <laughs> oh, none of us are perfect. Uh, no, I call, no, I call those not. my public confessions when I have to oh, tell somebody. Wow. <laughs> confessions of a stonemason. That's a good, uh, a good title for a book there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so tell me, tell me about your work. Tell me, I, do you, do you still train people? Do you, you, you actually go out and do the work also? So tell me about the work that you do. Yes, I'd say it's a good question. Um, I, when I was in Scotland uh, years ago, I was there for 10 years. I've actually been in the States now more years than, uh, than I was working in Scotland. But the teaching, as you can appreciate, uh, came to hold last year, came to a stop because of the oh, COVID. Yeah. Uh, we could not do any training. Up until that point, though, we have actually taken a few workshops this year in training with the Drystone Conservancy. But um, I've trained over 7,200 students in 35 years of teaching. And uh, that's a phenomenal amount. I've kept all the records of all these workshops that I've trained. And it's on everything from basic dry stone work to special features, arches, etc., and how to cut and dress stone, and even how to teach and train uh, other instructors how to become instructors, because right. there is a psychology there on how to pass on your knowledge. Um, so from there, um, the masonry work that we've done is, uh, I still do, yes, I do a lot of teaching. It's starting to pick up again this year, done a lot of work with the National Park Service. They're absolutely amazing to work with. Very professional indeed. Um, so, yes, so my work still involves 
it's pretty tough when you're there running your own business, you have to go and price your own work. So you're doing right. your estimates. Then uh, from your estimates, you've got uh, the work itself to line up, whether you need a one man crew or whether it's uh, more than one up to even right. 10. I did lead a team in uh, Kentucky about 20 years ago with 25 stonemasons. Oh my goodness. Uh, that was a, a huge project. Uh, that was for the Drystone Conservancy again there for a mile and a half of stonework. And it's a bit intimidating starting on day one. Oh yes. You can't, you can't see the end of the project. It's two <laughs> years away. <laughs> yes. It's two years away. So, but you start off, what we did there though, uh, again, this is a bit of psychology. It's daunting to even think Right. of starting with 25 stonemasons on day one. It's just incomprehensible. So what we did was uh, we started with six trainees and we had one supervisor for every six trainees. Then we progressed from there. Two weeks later, we'd introduce another six uh, trainees and put them through the same process. And again, we had another supervisor that would mentor and look after them. So before we knew it, we were up to actually 28, I think was maximum. But that's a lot of men to, to deal with. That is, and, um, yeah. not, and I, sh I should mention here, actually, it's equal opportunities. We've had quite a few females coming through oh, really? that's great. through the craft as well. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, they'll be pleased to hear this, that um, their quality sometimes will be a bit better than the men. They're more attention <laughs> to detail. That's, uh, that's what my dad always said. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 So my work is also from um, putting out my, my invoices. I'm working with the men and I'm mentoring them at the same time. So right. it's ongoing training on site. And my customers and clients usually know, know that before, I, before yeah. I start. And uh, any consultancy basis as well for uh, large companies, quality control measures. Yeah. So a bit of variety there, as you can tell straight away from, uh, yes. from that, that point. Do you still travel for, for work or do you stay mostly in, in, um, in Kentucky? That's a good question, actually, because I would just say to someone uh, last year, because COVID, I was very right. fortunate to be within my Louisville uh, area yeah. where I'm actually based. I was so blessed. They were one of my best skiers, actually. It's kind of strange. I don't know what happened, but a lot of influential customers. And I was very lucky. Again, I think this part of this is a blessing because right. uh, I was so fortunate to have all that work within my doorstep. Yeah. I had only one project for the National Park Service, and it was a logistical nightmare to get through all the states to get to in Connecticut. Right. Yeah. Um, because some states were closed down and uh, the park wouldn't let people on unless you had a COVID test, etc. Right. Take your temperature. So I'd only one job last year out of state, but it's, it's I've seen me working in 12 different states in the same year. Now, it's not <laughs> it's not like a, an office job where I can go to the same place every day. Right. But I have, I have to travel where the work is. Yeah. So this year, I, at the moment, we've spent seven months already working at Maker's Mark Distillery in Loreto in the, the south, the, the west Kentucky here. Okay. So we're working there at the moment. So yes, I have to travel. Um, yeah. There is a few other projects this year, um, not too far from uh, from a home base in Louisville. There's some yeah. in Ohio, etc., and still some more work in Connecticut. Yeah. So, yep, well, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's great. Does uh, so you you mentioned it, but but tell me about the Maker's Mark project because I actually think that was uh, I saw an article about it, which is why I reached out to you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, it actually that one started there. Uh, well, it was twelve years ago. I first had my introduction to do training courses with the Drystone Conservancy at Maker's Mark, uh, whereby we would train um, trainees there and also uh, through the weekend visit of the training, we got a chance to look around the distillery. That was part of the package and it was really nice around about lunchtime. 
Well, they have got a, a lot of dry stonework uh, in that area down there, in the, well, I'm saying down there in Loreto. And um, so from there, they've kept in touch with me over the years. And last September, they asked me if I would be able to build a bridge over a uh, Whiskey Creek. And um, I asked them how many bottles of whiskey were involved. But um, <laughs> is that is that how you want it to be paid? <laughs> <laughs> That's how the guys got paid at the pyramids. They got paid by beer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, things have changed slightly. But um, in September last year, I was in Scotland uh, visiting my family, and uh, I drew up some sketches. And I knew I had this meeting. And I drew up some sketches. And when I got there, I knew they'd ask a price. And I said, well. I thought they might be astonished, so I had to give some uh, comparables. I said, for a 10-foot bridge, it'd be probably the price of a brand new Range Rover. But I says, um, but it'll last a hell of a lot longer than a Range Rover. That's true. <laughs> so I was trying to give some comparison to prices there, and um, I thought that maybe hit home. Well, anyway, it wasn't a 10-foot bridge. It was a 20-foot bridge. Oh, my goodness. And we couldn't get the height. If you can do a single span, no problem with 20 foot tall. But you wouldn't get the ADA compliance, you know, for the disability, uh, for right. wheelchairs, et cetera, going across. So I thought, um, I need to plan this for a double barrel bridge. Well, it's quite apt because of the barrels down there, et cetera. So the double barrel was a well-named uh, name for the bridge. <laughs> so we put some sketches together and they accepted it and said, hey, when can you start? So we started in January, but... It's not as simple because uh, we wouldn't need the um, planning permission, et cetera, if it's just one abutment on one side and one on the other. But because we were impeding into the waterway, into the uh, creek, yeah. we needed uh, a permit from the state. So we had to call in uh, a good friend of mine who was one of my trainees at one point, was an engineer, uh, Keith Holtz. So when he came on board, he took my sketches and polished them up absolutely beautifully and uh, made it ADA compliant. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, that was just the icing on the cake right there. He made a fantastic job and they presented that to the state and to Makers Mark and it was accepted uh, without any trouble. So then we had to get the stone organized. Now that particular project, because it's sensitive there with the, the, the buildings, and the historic fabric of the whole place, we didn't want to cut and mess stone and make noise and dust, et cetera, down right. there at Makers Mark. So we got a good majority of the stone, probably 60% of it was actually fabricated off-site. And then when the stone came, it actually sped the process. It speeded it up. I, um, it expedited the whole thing because um, we did very minimal amount of work once the stone was on site. And then from there, we just run with the plans and uh, we had to cope with floods in the very first week. We oh, had um, eight degree temperatures uh, for uh, two weeks. We had five inches of snow and uh, then we had uh, 80 degrees of heat before we got the bridge finished. So we were there a total of 70 days, and I think we had everything that Mother Nature could throw at us. Sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> but the strange thing is, though, because we were prepared, we knew the forecast, and uh, we could cover the site uh, oh, with concrete blankets great. and yeah. plastic sheeting. So we were the only contractor at one point working on that particular site because uh, nobody else could work because of the, the right. temperatures. But with dry stone, we were very fortunate. Yeah, you don't need and, to worry about mortar. Yeah, exactly. That's it. So it wasn't very it wasn't very nice to work in, but we could still progress. So that's what uh, we, it's not our first rodeo. So we were. <laughs> Um, but no, it's fantastic. So the, the bridge is not finished yet. We still have the ADA railing to go on. Okay. It's got the LED lighting on it and there's four small pillars and they have coach lights to go on the top. 
and oh, the, uh, it's are going to be absolutely beautiful once it's finished. Yes. And fl floodlights from the creek side as well, floodlighting it. Oh, yeah. That'll be beautiful. Uh, oh, now, here's a nice little story as well that um, I'm famous for my stories, but this is a true <laughs> one. We just heard last week that uh, a couple recently proposed actually on the bridge. Oh, did they? So, yeah. yeah. So I did ask if they, if they accepted, like, but I never <laughs> Fingers crossed. There you go. So building bridges in many ways. Eh? Yes. <laughs> so um, are there um, some common misconceptions about dry stone masonry? I think the biggest one probably is that people think it's a dying trade. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is probably the biggest misconception I can think of because there is a huge revival uh, all over the country, in fact, all over the world. And I think it's because of the media attention nowadays as well um, and the, the, the internet, et cetera. Right. And the, the, um, the Stone Trust up in the, um, the Northeast, they're doing a fantastic job with their training and um, they're providing the most incredible workshops it's the same back down here in Kentucky and the, um, the Stone Foundation as well in, the, um, in New Mexico. So we're, they're providing all this knowledge and training and passing, the, passing on the knowledge. And I think that's what's most important because we want to try and encourage young people to come into the craft. Right. I know it's labor intensive, but um, myself getting older in years now, that um, who's going to be there in the future to take on board and take on the baton and uh, to keep going yeah. from there? So it's up to us who have the knowledge to pass on that knowledge. And uh, that's what I thrive upon. I couldn't get enough knowledge when I was starting in the process. And I have actually seen, it's, there's a slight improvement. There's a lot of young people coming into it. That's great. Um, but you've got to be, you know, you've got to be um, self-disciplined, I suppose, and turn up really and get right. on with it. But no, it's, I think that's the biggest misconception. Another one is, um, I think people, when they see the complexity of it, they relate it to a jigsaw. But right. that's another misconception because a jigsaw, there's only one way to put the jigsaw together. Right. And the, uh, you have a picture before you start. It's mm -hmm. not always that you have a picture in dry stone work. You might have an architect's drawing, etc. That's fine. But it's more of a puzzle because you can have this puzzle that can be put together a million different ways by a different master craftsman or different uh, tradesman. And it could still be technically correct. But with the jigsaw, you've only got the one way to put it together. But to, so the stonework is more of a puzzle than a jigsaw because there are so many ways to put it together. So that, right. I think that's the other misconception there. Maybe the final one, it's another mind of detail, but people think that it's just one stone. When they look at it, they only see one face uh, of it. Yeah. But the wall, the wall has a body to it and it has a batter. The batter is this angle of repose that keeps it, keeps it strong. It has like an A shape, really, if you break down the cross section. Right. So that, looking as a member of the public or a lay person looking at it, you think, oh, that's just one stone. Some walls actually have one stone going all the way through, but that's a different style, a different technique. Right. But once you get into the training and see the concept of how the wall is built, uh, then you have a different understanding for it. Yeah. And uh, but no, it, once again, it's just a fascinating there. Uh, it's a fascinating trade and craft. And I think um, if I could add at this point is when I left Scotland, I, I started my business in 1992 uh, from a hobby and probably 95% of it was agricultural based. It was for farmers and right. like, from the farming community. Now, 10 years later, when I came back, uh, when I came over to the United States here, it was only probably about 5% of my work was agricultural. And now we're working with architects, engineers, right. 
the stone art as well. You've got uh, Andy Goldsworthy, Dan Snow is a fantastic example of a, a tremendous artist who is using stone. He designs, Dan designs and also um, builds the features himself. He's a true mm -hmm. artist. So we're into art now as well. So there's all these different facets of stonework and uh, it, it's pretty incredible, I think. So it's um, uh, it's pretty incredible. That's a great craft, I think. Yes, yes, it, it, it is. It's And it's, um, I know you were talking about earlier about the when you were working in agriculture and it being, you know, the, you could get the straight rows and, and, but it wasn't, it didn't stay, but this really has permanence. And there's really, it's, you know, I think of that quote of, you know, that th these are the stones that my f forefathers have touched or, you know, however that goes. Um, but, you know, it really does make me think of that connection through, throughout time. Yeah. There is a nice thing there, actually, just mentioned there, Danielle, that um, when I'm working on the, any restoration projects or preservation projects, mm -hmm. one of the things that goes through my mind is who touched the stone before me? Right. Because when I build a new feature and I design it, like the bridge, I designed that myself and we built it with a team. Mm -hmm. It's my signature or the mason signature that we're working with. We're actually cutting and dressing the stone ourselves. Right. But when we're doing preservation work, this is fantastic to think, well, they didn't have steel cut boots, probably. They didn't have canopies to work in. Right. And the conditions were probably horrific. And the, the amount they get paid is probably still much the same as today. No, no I'm just right. joking. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, though, I'm always wondering, was it an old person? Was it a young person? Right. There is a wall that I built, a uh, repair, sorry, uh, in the, um, uh, where was it? New York, uh, New York State. It was in uh, Hyde Park uh, for mm -hmm. the FDR property, the right. uh, National Park Service there. One side of the wall is beautifully built, absolutely beautiful. And then on the other side, it's not seen by the public. I would class it to be substandard. So uh, to me, it looks as if an apprentice had to start somewhere and he was working on right, the other side. on the back side. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So, and then the place and the side and the stone that was going to be seen by the public and the, and all these uh, very influential people right. was the, it's dressed to the client, so to speak. So they had all the nice to look at, the nice yeah. side to look at. Yeah. So that's that's fair. That, that's, that, uh, that makes sense to me though, because you, if you put the work that's not, not exactly up to par in the back, pe most people won't see it. Yep, and, yep. And, and then you get your get you get your training in. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we'll about to start somewhere. I mean, yeah. um, I, I think the the Drysdale Conservancy has just celebrated the twenty fifth anniversary. So twenty five years of training. Uh, the Drystone Walling Association of Great Britain they started in nineteen sixty eight. So over the years, things have changed. Uh, things have been modified. But there's stone structures in Scotland that are over 3,000 years old. And same with the pyramids are 5,000 years old. The Drystone Conservancy and DSW weren't about in them days. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so uh, uh, talk to me a little bit about the trends and challenges that you see in preservation. The biggest thing I've noticed in the last few years is, in fact, there's a fine example at Maker's Mark. Um, myself, through the Drysdale Conservancy, did a repair. And this repair, when it is finished, is almost unnoticeable. Because what we rely on is the philosophy of preservation. And uh, when you're working in stonework, there is what we call character-defining features. And when we take a mossy-coloured stone off the wall, you want to put the stone back to respect the old stonemasons. Now, 
I can hear people saying now, but oh, that might be different. But 90% of the time, the stone goes back the way it was taken off the wall. And this is where you have to use your own integrity and your own discipline to say, well, this stone was not put in the right, the right way. So you might have to change it another way to put it back right. in. It's got structural uh, integrity. From there, um, there has been a recent repair, and they, they use it as an example. They said, this is what happens when Neil's not here. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see every stone that's been put in has got uh, a different color, it's different shape, and it really does not respect the old stonemason's work, actually. And right. They, so this is the, the, the biggest problem I think I see with challenges, and that's not just in stonework. Um, but you want to try and, I'll, I'll give you an example again, worked with the Park Service in the Corwin Barn in New York State many years ago. And the guy there taught me to say, Neil, we need to put the stone up vertical and it needs to go back in this way. <coughs> Excuse me. And I said, I can't do that or I'll get struck off. <laughs> and um, they said, no, Neil, you're respecting the old stonemasons. This is called the philosophy of preservation. So that totally is a huge education for me. Right. And when we work with the park service, it's technically like a four-day course, an instructor course on it. And uh, from that philosophy of preservation, there is what they call the significance, integrity, location. And that might be something like where the stonework is in the Tetons, right. uh, the history, architectural analysis, the period of significance. I mentioned the character-defining features and also the treatment recommendations as well. So all these th things come into play with the right. preservation. And you probably heard the terminology of rehabilitation is mm -hmm. different from reconstruction, right. restoration and preservation. So I think this is where if you start working in preservation, particularly in stonework, from my point of view, is that it would be really nice if there had been a bit more education for anyone doing stonework to go through one of these courses uh, if it was possible. Um, because uh, I think it's a, it's a fantastic process. Again, the, the history of America is so small. Uh, you've only got a couple of hundred years. Right. Really. Yeah, we don't have, we, in perspective, we don't have a lot. <laughs> well, given the, the National Park Service, um, the, some of their uh, criteria is, if anything's over 50 years old, then it becomes historic. Right. So that means I must be prehistoric. <laughs> <laughs> So, but from there though, there is what they call in the park service as the 106 process. I don't know if you right. came across it, 106. Yeah. So you're aware of that. So that actually helps. That's a starting point. If, uh, if you go to a client and say, have you been through the 106 process? They have looked into the historic fabric. Is there any historic pictures? A fine example is the Sunken Road uh, in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And uh, we worked there and there was nothing to help us there apart from some pictures. So they went back and they, um, they looked at the old historic pictures and this is what we had to replicate. And they, all this, there were no stone on site. And it was then I was educated into what they call as the waddle scale of roundness. And I had never came across this before. Yeah. So that was to tell you what size of stone it was and the gauge of it. And they, um, so that was new to us. When we finished, they put an overlay of our work on a picture over the overlay of the, the old historic pictures and it was oh. absolutely unbelievable. So we use this 106 process to help us replicate what was there before. And another thing with the, most of the park service we work with, um, it's fine to go and do the job and the project, but if you go to the visitor center and see the interpretive videos they have, 
-hmm. especially the sunken road when we went to see it it had a whole different perspective because of the thousands and thousands of people who had lost their lives uh, uh, on yes. a particular wall there so it wasn't just the wall and that's another thing about all the projects every project has a sensitivity to it it has an atmosphere as well when you're working there Right, but, but getting back to the philosophy of preservation, um, it's it's a fantastic process. I just wish there was a bit more education there for. I don't know if it works in the other trades throughout the um, throughout the park service or um, in the preservation uh, throughout America, um, but uh, I think it's it's a very um, sensitive area actually. I really do. Yeah, yeah, I I agree, and I think that a lot of the education is people have to seek it out. It's not just you know you. You, it's not it's not there's not just one one way to do it you have to find multiple ways for to get training or the, to understand yep. the, the preservation process and terminologies yeah I, I I did um I learned most of mine you know working working um in the within the business um my my um my education degrees are in um in in um business so like I don't yeah so I I I I learned all of the park service terminology and all of that by there actually working and doing and and I think that you know there now there are more more programs available but when I was starting out there weren't there weren't as many as there are now. Yep. Yep. No, that's good. And I think this is the I mentioned earlier there about the um, IPTW, the International yes. Preservation Trades Workshop with the PTN. That's a great organization. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It was actually through it. Uh, in 2010, uh, because of all the training I'd done throughout the, the years, I, I was presented with the Askins Achievement Award, and the, um, that was in 2010. And the, um, so that was a great honour to receive that for yes. all the training I'd done throughout the States. But, and one of the things I do respect over here, now I've got to be careful what I say here, because sometimes there's a little professional jealousy uh, in the trades, uh, maybe in Scotland, etc. It's a bit more complacent with the... Um, how can I put this um, with the advancement of, of the um, the historical stone? Because we'll, we'll have mm. so much history in Scotland. Right. Yeah. But over here, there's a lot of respect for each other's trade here in America, and um, I think from blacksmithing, timber framing, painting, uh, lead work, everything, uh, it is fantastic over here. The respect that each person has for the trades, and we can learn from each other as well. Yes. Yeah. Because even if I'm doing a foundation of stonework, we've got to think, is there a, a, a carpenter coming behind us? Is there a timber framer, et cetera? And then he's thinking about the next person. So having a respect there and um, whether even an electrician or a plumber. Right. So I think there is a tremendous respect over here for the trades. I, um, I think that's fantastic. I like that. I really do like it. Yeah, over here for that yeah. that's that's an interesting perspective because yeah, we do. I I at least when we when we work with other people, we try to make sure that we're doing things that make things easier. And you know, I'm glad to hear that that you see that all over. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, um, did you um, before before we go through our kind of our wrapping up questions? Was there anything that you thought of that you wanted to? Um, that you wanted to share that maybe I forgot to ask you or that you thought of while we were while we were talking? Well, I, I think with the media that we have nowadays, uh, there's a lot of um, workshops and training out there. Yes. I'd like to try and encourage youngsters to come out there and uh, go on to training. And um, it's normally, I would say normally a five-year apprenticeship. Now that's the broad term there, but someone could actually do a, um, a get through all the certifications you know, within three years with a lot of dedication. Right. And some people, with all due respect, some people never get there. But uh, again, 
I would like young people to not to be frightened to come into this hard work. It's very rewarding. Yeah. And they get some training. Not only the training come, comes also with certification. So it's another feather in your cap. It's another piece of education. And uh, it can actually have a financial benefit as well. So if you're applying for a job and you're a basic level certification person, or if you're a master craftsman, you're obviously going to get paid more right. if you went through yeah. the certification process. So there's also an incentive there for the trainees. And when we're working with a team, if I have to organize a team, then it's a pro rata, you know, for their, for their money. So there's an incentive there. And I think it's a, it should be a self-awareness and um, it's a professional development, yes. you know, for them to, to move on. But it takes a special, special person to do that. And um, but to let them know that uh, there is the availability out there to train and get uh, trained and uh, whether it's, I'll give you an example that uh, my experience throughout the years with agriculture took on a project with the National Park Service. Now it relied on the uh, doing concrete, uh, laying concrete, putting in um, uh, cement blocks, concrete blocks, cinder blocks, brickwork, uh, flat work, uh, did landscaping, stonework. We did the flat cap finish. We did the um, uh, we did the lighting, uh, mulching, seeding. We did everything, and I was right. a general contractor on that particular project. Now, if that was offered to some people, say no, 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 no. I only do dry stonework. Right. Well, if you keep your options open, then the um, the availability to understand these different trades and work with it. The only thing I didn't do was the asphalt and the chip seal. I had to get a contractor in to do right. it. <laughs> but, um, but then again, you're pulling in a, a, an expertise of that trade yeah. um, because there's temperature control. Even the, the chip seal has got to go down after it's saying that the, um, the asphalt is sealed up. So it's just, once again, it's just all the protocol that goes into it. But I'd like, that's what I would finish off with in saying that to, to encourage young people to come into the craft. Yes, um, I, I agree with you. I, I do agree It's not you. for everybody. It has to be... It has to be like a passion. It's got to come from inside. Yeah. I, um, my own son, actually, at sixteen, I, I would I would have liked for him to come into the into the trade, but he was on scaffolding at sixteen. He was shivering. He had a, a hard hat on, and he had some parking. Oh no! And I said to him, "This is not for you, is it?" And he says, "Nah." Yeah, I have a <laughs> my un- my uncle was a framer, and uh-huh. his his son was with him like over the summer helping him frame when he was like probably in middle school and he fell, uh-huh. he fell off the roof and he was fine, thankfully. But he, after that, he was done. He wasn't, he wasn't doing, yep. he wasn't doing that yep. again. <laughs> and I yep. think you, did, you do, you have to know your limits. <laughs> well, I think, well, when I look back now, I think my son, um, I think he did, the, he made the right choice because he's now got three houses and he prices jobs in fiber optics. That's, uh, that's his occupation yeah. now. Now at um, at sixteen, he's now what thirty eight, and uh, he's pricing jobs with fiber optics at five hundred and seventy five million. Oh my so goodness! He's in, yeah, he's in one of the most up to date technological jobs, yeah. and I'm still in the Stone Age. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but but yours yours probably needs less updating. <laughs> So just one uh, one last story there I could tell right. you that many years ago, a good friend of mine, uh, Nicky, and uh, with this customer I am um, uh, from Seattle. This is what brought us across the states in the first place. And uh, Nick said to me, he said, Neil, we need to get to the United States. And I said, well, Nick, you know my price. And he says, I'm going to go for nothing because I just want to go. I said, well, that's, <laughs> I said that, that's up to you. Well, when we got there, when we got there, we built this uh, 210 feet in, uh, I think it was 11 days. 
and um, it was uh, it was just stone that was from a quarry, and uh, the owner just let us uh, let us into his house, and he looked after us. Well, one of the Wednesdays we were there, lo and behold, we had a six point eight earthquake when we were there. Oh goodness. We could see the ground move um, under our feet. I had never experienced anything quite like it. Right. It incredible. And, uh, but the stonework, this is one of the benefits of dry stonework. It has flexibility. And the stonework was unaffected whatsoever. Oh, that's although, exciting. <laughs> although in, um, in Seattle, there was two, I think it was $2 billion worth of damage because of the old buildings weren't prepared for oh, it. Oh, yeah. So even 20 years ago, with the technology, we sent an email back to Scotland, and we're both from Scotland, so we, we titled the email, Scots on the Rocks, Shaken but Not Stirred. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh, but that's that's truly a testament to, to the flexibility, in it because I think most people would think if it's dry stone and there's nothing holding it together, that it's just going to crumble. And yeah. uh, that's really a testament to the craft. Well, the two fundamentals with dry stone work are friction and gravity, and that's why it's built like a pyramid. And even with a round stone, you can exaggerate the batter. That's the angle of repose again, oh, yeah. so make it wider. It's a bit like building with potatoes, um, but uh, the same concept. So it's all relative uh, how you work with it, but it does speak to you. Um, so that's it, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, very good. Did you have any offers um, for our listeners? Anything you'd like to promote? Um, not really, nothing okay, I can think that's, of. No, that's fine. Okay, so. how can how can our listeners get in touch with you? Probably by email is probably okay. my best way, actually. Um, okay. And uh, have you got you've got my email address? I there, do, right? I do. We'll make sure that it is um, that is on the on the Excellent. website. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. No, that's fantastic, Danielle. Yeah. Really appreciate it. No, very good. It. Thank you. Thank you very much for for um, taking the time to, to speak with me today. No problem. So I'll see you at St. Clairsville in uh, September. Right? Oh, yes, hopefully. <laughs> at PTN, Preservation yeah. Trades Network. Yeah. Thank you very much, Danielle. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yes. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.